Okay, we now, we have audio. Hit the record button. Episode 3 is now in effect. That's my cool, sexy voice for those of you who do not know. Welcome to the Here First Radio Podcast. I am the host, Bruce Almighty. Welcome to the show. So for those of you who remember when I used to do the show here at First Radio, maybe about eight years ago, 2013, yeah, about six, seven years ago, this here at First Podcast is not going to be anything remotely close to that. I've had a lot of people send me music and and tell me, hey, you should interview me. I got a great song. I'm doing this. I'm doing rap. And and I'm not trying to knock y'all. But that's not what this podcast is going to be. I don't want to pigeonhole myself into that lane. So I apologize in advance if that's what you're expecting. Um, If you looked at the previous episodes on Apple Podcast, the show was a lot different, very unstructured. This time I'm trying to be a little more professional. I'm trying to actually do this for real as a profession. So... Bear with me, although I will spotlight music. I will uh, figure out a way to segue, you know, one or two songs that you may not have heard of from artists you may not have heard of. And uh, but right now it is all about building the platform. So I appreciate everybody that's been trying to hit me up, trying to get me to put music on my podcast, I really do appreciate it, but this Here at First podcast is not going to be the same thing that Here at First Radio was back in the day, I'm not the same person, I've grown, I've changed, I've evolved, so before you guys get critical of me and start hating on me, um, just pay attention to the moves I'm making, maybe you will understand what I'm trying to build and appreciate that in the future. I can't really talk about the growth I've had as a human being without really diving deep into my years of incarceration. I I think that plays a big part in defining who I am as a person. And people say, oh, the passion define you. But the reality is that it does. Um, I think I'm going to talk about about my most recent incarceration, which I was released almost six years ago. Um, I did a quick little two-year bid. A lot of that was spent in work release. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like I was doing hard time. That time was fairly easy, but I think that time really changed me, who I am as a person, how I value my freedom, and how easy it is to end up back in the system when you're trying so hard to do right. Um, For some of you that remember, I was here at First Radio. The show was getting very popular. I had a lot of success on the Internet. I was, you know, my show went viral a few times before viral was the norm for people. Um, I didn't know what to do with the success. I was getting all these listens, all these fans, all these people tuning in, but I didn't know what to do with it. And like, I did not understand how popular I was till I, I went away to prison. When I went to prison, I was surprised at how many people locked up knew about the show. And 
it it humbled me. It really did. So while I was uh, waiting to go to court to get sentenced, I mean, I was fighting my case out on bail for a couple years, two years, I want to say. And I'm not going to get too much into my case. But during that time I was fighting my case, I was still living reckless. I was getting high every day. I was partying. I was doing the Here First radio thing. I was dropping mixtapes. Bootleggers Made Me Famous. I think I dropped Bootleggers Made Me Famous 4 in Volume 5 when I was out on... uh No, 4.5 when I was out on Bond. And... uh like, I knew I was going to prison. Like, when my lawyer told me the gravity of my charges and said, even though they don't seem that serious, your criminal history is making it very hard for you not to go to prison. So when I realized that and I realized I was going to prison, like, my mentality changed. I started to not care. I started to live more reckless because I felt like, hey, I'm going to prison anyway. And, like, I didn't value relationships, friendships, like, it it really took a toll on my psyche. I think me waiting to go to prison, knowing I'm going to prison, was probably just as damaging as anything. You know, when you feel like your future is hopeless, you're like, man, I'm going to prison. I'm about to lose all of this. And I, I thought that when I got out of prison, I was going to jump right back into radio, right back into DJing, right back into doing mixtapes right back into doing music and doing what I love to do, but that wasn't the case. So when I went away to prison, I I go to the county jail, I'm processed, and uh, uh, a week or two later, I'm, I'm sent to South Florida Reception Center. I don't know where I'm going. And for anybody that's ever been incarcerated, that is one of the scariest parts of it is waiting to be transferred to your permanent institution. They don't tell you where you're going. Um, you don't know if you're going to be close to home, far from home. You don't know if you're going to be in a close custody type situation or if you're going to be around lifers, killers, rapers. Um, they have certain prisons in the state of Florida where like, everybody's sick from AIDS. Uh, people are dying. People are lifers. People are... You know, it's 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 scary when you don't know where you're going. So you don't know how to prepare your mindset. You know, do you got to be a gladiator when you get there or do you just got to, you know, do your time and go home? You don't know if you're going to a place where the correctional officers are abusive because there is a whole lot of that in the Florida Department of Corrections. It's a scary feeling. And it doesn't really go away until you're transferred uh, after being there a couple weeks. I was transferred to Franklin Correctional Institution. It's in the close to the Florida Panhandle. And it was a crazy prison. It's crazy. When I first walked into the dorm, they said they send you to a transit dorm. And as soon as I walked in, I hear, oh shit, it's Bruce Almighty. So immediately I'm nervous because at this point I don't know if it is friend or foe. And I'm walking to my bunk assignment to make my bunk, put away my stuff, my belongings. You know, at this point, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty nervous. You're just walking into a dormitory in a pretty large prison. 
And this prison was known, you know, it was, it wasn't a gladiator school, but there were a lot of killers there. It was a life in prison. And I'm thinking, man, I got two years and here I am around a bunch of lifers. Now I'm in what you call a transit dorm. So I don't know who's there. I don't know what's there. I don't know. I don't know the concept of a transit dorm yet. And when the guy told me, he said, hey, you're Bruce Almighty from the radio, right? I was, I was, yeah, it's me. He said, man, you played my music on, on the show. And I'm like, oh, that's what's up. That's cool. He says, yeah, you flushed my shit. We had a segment called Rush It or Flush It where artists would submit music. I would play it on on, uh, on the show. I would give my opinion on it, Rush It or Flush It. We'd have callers call in and they would give their opinion on it. It was a popular segment. However, he was not mad at me for flushing his music. He said, man, he said the song was garbage. He said, but uh, the insight you gave us on the show, me and the group went back, we redid the song with different producers, different engineers, and then it was a good local hit in Orlando. And, you know, then we we talked and conversated and uh, he ended up being being pretty cool. So right after that, it's count time, and we have to go sit on a bunk. I got a bunk off in the corner of the dorm. It's an open bay dorm. If you think about what an open bay dorm, it's a big warehouse-like room with rows and rows of bunk beds. And I was in the back corner, and you know people started talking to me. And in Florida, the first thing people want to know is where you're from. And I was I'm from Palm Beach County. But I have lived everywhere from Miami, Fort Lauderdale, Pompano. I was, I lived almost everywhere there is to live in South Florida. I knew I was, I was one of those people that was good in every hood. I knew all the gangsters in Miami, Fort Lauderdale, Palm Beach, Pompano. You know, I knew all the gangsters. And when you, you know, the people are, are start asking, oh, do you know such and such? If you're from Palm Beach, they're going to know, do you know such and such? And the thing is, I knew all of them. I knew a lot of people from my work in music, from when I was out there hustling. And, you know, so what people start doing, they'll start asking you questions about who you know. And then what they're going to do is they're going to call back home to see, if, you know, try to figure out if you friend or foe, if you you in there on a bullshit reputation, are you a snitch, are you this, are you that, are you fake, are you phony? Now, I was never the tough guy in the streets, and you know, for the last fifteen years. Maybe when I was a teenager, I loved to fight. I used to fight a lot, but my rep- reputation after I turned like got into my early thirties is I was I was smart. I didn't fight. I didn't want to shoot. I didn't want to do none of that. I was all about the hustle. And, you know, so so when people were calling back home, I guess people said good things about me because after that, everybody respected me. Nobody messed with me. Nobody tried to fight me. Nobody tried to rob me. I never had issues in prison to where people were trying to check me. So all those stories you hear um, in the movies or on TV shows where you got to fight as soon as you go into prison to, to bolster your reputation, that's inaccurate. That's not true. Um, if you do that, you're probably going to get killed. So after that, you know, I would do the typical things. I would go, you know, go on the yard, work out, 
and you're there for like a couple of days before you get your work assignment. My first work assignment was outside grounds. I had to go outside the prison, cut the grass, do I had to run a weed eater, pick up trash, you be, you know, to be honest, physically that work is brutal. You're in a hot ass sun. Full uniform. You wearing your prison blues t-shirt under you're wearing an undershirt, the the blue shirt over it. Um and it, it's really hot, really brutal. When it comes into the winter, it's really cold. There's no escaping the cold because you're in North Florida. Uh, it, it, it was rough. And a lot of people wanted that job because they had an opportunity to smuggle stuff inside, whether it's cigarettes, whether it's that uh, synthetic weed in there. They called it Toonchi or Twack, that, that, uh, K2 Spice. Um, there was an epidemic at that prison for... Synthetic weed. It was everywhere. You've seen zombies everywhere. Um, I tried it one time. They told me, oh, it's just like weed. So I tried it. And it was nothing like weed. It was not for me. And then uh, I'm out there working outside grounds. I'm cutting grass. Weed is hot. I'm losing weight. It's so hot. And randomly, I get called into classification. They said, uh, we see that you're educated. I'm like, define educate. I got a GED and I got a little bit of uh, college classes for water treatment plants. And, you know, I don't know what you call it. Oh, but it says you have a trade in, in communications. I said, well, I wouldn't call it a trades. I, I had an Internet radio station. He was like, oh, OK. He said, well, we're going to move you to uh, to the canteen warehouse. And if you fuck this up, you're going to go to the box and you're going to be in the box the whole time you're here. And I was like, okay, well, the canteen warehouse is where you go and you basically stock all the canteen stores at the prison. You are responsible for inventory, making sure, you know, you got everything stocked that you need. You do your orders for products that you're low on. The company was called Kefi, which was owned by the Bush administration. Or the Bush family. If you look it up, you'll you'll see Kefi is a company that is basically the prison store. It's like uh, they they if you buy it in prison, whether it's ramen noodles, honey buns, hygiene products, radios, MP3 players, batteries, anything you might need in prison that you purchase from a store, it is sold in Kefi. Now this this company is very. It's all about profit. Um, you think a if you buy ramen noodles at Walmart, they're eleven cents a a uh, eleven cents a pack. If you buy them in bulk, I'm sure they're much more. I'm sure they're more like five cents or four cents if you buy them directly from from a manufacturer, which I'm sure Kefi did because nothing sells on that compound more than cases of ramen noodle soups and. They, everything is overpriced. Everything. Like a pack of ramen noodle soups is 50 cents. Bags of chips are almost a dollar. Uh, and you're talking about shebangs. And, you know, it, nothing is great quality, but everything is super expensive. That's how they make their money. Hey, you can't knock the hustle. But, you know, this also brings into certain questions of the Bush family's ties to 
incarceration. And we'll get to that. This this is not going to be the the prison reform episode just yet. This is just laying my background out so you understand why I do like to speak on this topic. So I go to work in this warehouse and and I got a guy that's uh He's not a lifer, but he's got like 40 years. He's been in for 20. He's got like 20. And it's like a a sentence where he has to do 85% of the time. And he's not getting out anytime soon. He immediately feels threatened because, hey, there's a new guy in the warehouse. It's always been a two-man job. The other guy was uh, sent to confinement for stealing. So uh, automatically he's trying to make sure I'm not a thief. I'm like, hey, man, I'm just trying to do my time, go home, yada, yada, yada. And I start working that job. I didn't even get a paycheck yet. Then one morning, I, I keep in mind, I've been at this prison for a month and a half at this point. And all of a sudden, they're saying, hey, you're being transferred. They came and get me from the warehouse, say, go back to your dorm, pack your stuff. You're going, you're, you're being transferred. So immediately fear goes in because I have no idea where I'm going. I'm not eligible for work release. I'm not eligible for anything. He just said, hey, you, uh, you're being transferred. Oh, shit. I'm nervous. So I go back to the dorm and I'm start packing my property. And everybody's gathering around me. Where are you going, Ruth? Where are you, are you getting out? You getting out? No, nah, I'm being transferred. Where are you going? Are you going to work release? I'm not even eligible for work release at this point. And uh, I'm scared. I'm not going to lie. I was scared. I was afraid because being transferred unannounced like that sometimes can be scary. Sometimes the Department of Corrections just shifts people around without warning to kind of break up the gangs and, and uh, the cliques and all that. And people that they think is a security threat group. And I know I wasn't part of that security threat group. So I, I, don't, I had no idea why I was being transferred. And. They sent me down, they sent me to classification and they said, uh, they wouldn't tell me where I was going or why I was going. And a next thing you know, they put me on a bus. And that day I went to a, another reception center. I went to, uh, Lake Butler, which is infamous for beating up inmates, especially black people with gold teeth. And Lake Butler was in there. Was, there were rumors that in Lake Butler they had jars of gold teeth uh, from inmates that they knocked out their gold teeth. And I believe there's some truth to the rumors. I, I did, you know, I, I, I seen some, some crazy stuff in Lake Butler. Everybody, when you get to Lake Butler, you're scared. Because the smallest hiccup can be a result in you getting your ass whooped by a security guard or a prison guard. So I'm at eight Lake Butler. They're still not telling me nothing. And I'm there for, for the weekend. It, I think it was a Thursday when they transfer, I get there to Lake Butler and I'm there Friday, Saturday, Sunday. No, I was there a few days cause I stayed there the weekend and I can't call anybody. I can't call home. I don't know if my family was trying to come visit me at Franklin correctional. So I'm nervous. And, and yeah, this whole prison episode where I'm talking about my experience in prison is, is a lot of it's going to be talking about me being scared because I was fucking scared. And at Lake Butler, you're not, you're not scared of the inmates at all. Like people say what they want about prison, but the majority of the time, it's not the inmates that you fear. It's the secure, it's the prison, prison officials. 
and the guards, classification, the correctional officers. You're scared that one wrong hit, you're going to have a, a, a guard having a bad day, and all of a sudden they're going to be beating the shit out of you. It happens, especially with the reputation at, at Lake Butler. So I get to Lake Butler, and they put me in a dorm, and I look to the bunk next to me. There's this Asian guy with a million tattoos. And they're all like Pyru blood tattoos, gang affiliate, Damu rider. And and uh, he says, hey, you're Bruce, ain't it? I'm like, ain't no way in the world this fucking guy knows me. I'm like, yeah, I'm Bruce. He goes, we were in uh, Hillsborough Correctional Center back in, in 94. Like in 1994, I was in a youthful correctional institute, like uh, prison for young adults. In 1994, he said, yeah, man, man, me and you were cool back then. And he says, you don't recognize me because I didn't have all these tattoos. So I, I still don't remember them, but I'm playing like I do. I'm like, oh, yeah. He said, yeah, man, I got out and I, I went right back. I got life now. I, you know, I got I got a, caught a murder charge and got life. And I'm like, oh, man, that's fucked up. I still don't really remember this guy at this point. He starts telling me stories from Hillsborough Correctional and it all started coming back to me. Because you're talking about 20 years ago. And I'm thinking to myself, man, this is this is nuts. Like, out of nowhere, I'm seeing people that I haven't seen for 20 years. So me and Bishop started having conversations. I started asking him, you know, what happened? How did he end up getting life? And he told me he caught a murder charge. You know, I'm not going to get into details on the case. But, you know, Bishop, Bishop had a, a fucked up situation. And he got life. And I asked him, I said, well, how are you coping or dealing with having a life sentence? What's that like? And he said, man, you just forget the outside world exists. He said, you know, this is your home now. This is your world. This is your universe. Everything within these walls or Department of Corrections, whether it's another prison. He said, uh, you just try to live comfortably. And, you know, he said, you don't really have purpose in life anymore. Said so, you, you know, and, and I couldn't digest that or comprehend that because I've never been in that situation. And hopefully, you know, this this whole podcast is, is somewhat therapeutic for me because I'm just I'm trying to really understand how I'm coming back to doing the Here First Radio podcast. And a big part of this is is me understanding why I stopped. When I got out, I I took a brief little jab at dropping a mixtape and relaunching the radio show, and and then I just lost interest. I didn't want to do it anymore. And I, I'm trying to understand why, because that passion is, has come back to me, but it's, it's not the same as, as what it was. And what I mean by it's not the same, I don't mean that I don't have the same passion for it. It means that my purpose is different my reason is different and a big part of that is because of what i went through in prison from north florida reception center aka lake butler i was transferred to sago palm correctional which is a pre-release prison people with three years or less go to that prison i had less than three years i qualified uh, the pre-release program is is they try to send you close to home. Sago Palm Correctional was actually 
at the house. It was in the same county I lived in. Like all my friends and family were from there. This was the best case scenario. I was close to home. I knew almost all the inmates or they knew of me or knew me. Uh, A lot of the correctional officers were people that had been to some of my events, whether I was DJing or or hosting an event at a club. Uh, Some of them even were fans of the radio show or had relatives I was friends with. It was supposed to be best case scenario. At this point, I'm stoked because now my family can come visit. Uh, And I was excited about that. Got to see my mother, my sister. And they came to visit pretty quickly as soon as they found out where I was. I only had a couple months before I was eligible for work release. And if I could maneuver through Sago Palm Correctional without incident, I would be in work release in a couple months when I would be eligible. So, everything's going well. Now, Sago Palm is is different in one aspect. It was built more like a county jail with, like, pods and two-man cells. And, you know, it was strange because I came from an open bay dormitory with, you know, like I said, the rows of bunk beds and a big warehouse to two-man cells. And I had a roommate, with which was this very large white dude with red hair, you know, workout nut, and he was a K2 Spice junkie. That man would smoke K2 all day, every day. I think a couple times I got a contact high, and it was a weird experience. He he would get into fights. It was it was wild. He worked in the kitchen, but he he was he was always trying to be cool with me, and he knew about my radio show. I was actually. Had a, a a beef with one of his friends. He was from Boca Raton. And like when I was doing the radio show, there was a rapper that used to get mad. And he started beefing with me and another artist I was managing at the time by the name of Tenfo. His name was GC. And he was friends with him. But that's not really here nor there nor very important for the story. So... I'm I'm going through my routine every day. Every day they make you get out of the dorm to go to yard. And you go for a couple hours, just walk the yard, work out, do whatever, come back. And you would do that every day, a couple times a day. You would have to be on the yard a lot. Sometimes it was hot, sometimes it wasn't. And I would walk the track, do my dips and push-ups, politic. You know, just be out there talking talking with the people. Well, the funny thing is, is, is although this was a pre-release program and everybody there had short time, three years or less, there were a lot of people in there that were just crazy. And some of them, there was a group of white supremacists in there and they used to congregate on the yard and they hated me because I always hung out with, with black folks, people I knew, people from the same neighborhoods I would, I lived in and they would I, I would hear the whispers of them talking shit didn't bother me I, I I didn't care they weren't gonna try to fight me they weren't gonna try to stab me they weren't gonna run up or pull up or whatever the terminology is these days and I was just baffled at the fact we're in a pre-release program and this place has a gang problem 
Granted, there was not really much violence in spite of the fact that there was not a whole lot of uh, correctional officer supervision there. There wasn't a lot of violence. There was a lot of shit talking. I didn't see much violence. I mean, they'd have fist fights and, and whatnot, but you never heard about that. Nobody was risking that freedom for real violence. And I, I think the politicking and, and the, the people clicking up and gangs and white supremacists and, and all that, I think it was more um, trying to feel like they belong to something. This uh, pre-release program was supposed to have a lot of vocational programs there to learn trades and whatnot. There wasn't any. Like, they, it was false advertisement. There was not, there were no teachers for the vocations. There were not, uh, the only thing there that was uh, really worked, that was actually active, was the GD program. So I was there and I couldn't get any trades. I couldn't do anything productive with my time. Uh, I think the only work I did was pick up trash around the compound. They had, like, that. I was an inside grounds inmate where I'd pretty much walk around, pick up trash. That was it. I'd do it for an hour in the morning, and then the rest of the day I had to myself. I would, like, pretty much hang out in the yard, politic, et cetera, et cetera. And so a lot of my time was wasted. Now, if this is a pre-release program, they're not getting anybody. It, well, I'm thinking I'm calling it wrong. The proper term was a re-entry program. To re-enter people into society, people that have been incarcerated, and they they need to get out and they need to find opportunities, whether it's get jobs or or you know be a productive member of society. And this is falsely classified as a re-entry program, but there was no re-entry programs beside the GED program. There wasn't really church. There wasn't really anything you could do to better yourself, except sit around, hang out with your friends. Smoke smoke cigarettes and, and drugs if you can get your hands on it, which was readily available because the institution was corrupt. There were a lot of guards smuggling stuff in, cigarettes in. There was ca- I'd never seen so much cash on a compound. There was cash everywhere. And that was the hustle. You would get visitation and you would sneak cash in and cash could get you a lot. Whether you could buy some pussy from a female guard. You can get a guard to smuggle you in some cigarettes so you can sell them on the black market. Even weed, coke, pills, molly. There was everything there. This is a reentry program. And this is part of the reason why our correctional system has failed is because the programs that are set up that are supposed to benefit us are not really benefiting us. They're just there so some politician can make money off of it or whoever is set up to make money will make money um when i get into you know when i talk about the labor like when i talk about franklin correctional how you're cutting grass and all that and another thing that happens a lot in correctional facilities is they farm this is slave labor i, I i've seen it covered in a lot of other another documentary a lot of other documentaries where inmate labor is contracted out. The inmates don't get paid. Somebody gets paid because it's contracted out. Either by the city or the government. And, you know, it's taking somebody's job. 
they pay like maybe a minimum wage or something like that and you know the inmate does all this hard labor that not a lot of people want to do that should pay well but it doesn't pay well the inmate don't get paid at all but somebody's collecting a check for all that labor this is modern day slavery if you watch the documentary the 13th amendment it goes deep into detail on that so I'm not gonna really focus on that but all of these programs that are supposed to be beneficial to the inmate and supposed to help him better himself to be a productive member of society when he's released just aren't there so where's the money going who's getting those checks it's got to be somewhere when I when I left Sago Palm Correctional and was transferred to work release program, I went to a North Miami Work Release Center for a week, and then I was sent to Opalaka Work Release. And in Opalaka Work Release, I was put as a permanent party inmate. A permanent party inmate is somebody that works at the work release center. You're not allowed to go out into the community and get a paying job, so you can start making some money to save up for when you're released. So... I was told I had to work in the kitchen. They had no cooks, not a lot of not a lot of people to work in the kitchen. You're supposed to work five, maybe six days of work if necessary. I had to work seven because they didn't have another person that could cook. And I was I was a pretty good cook, so I had to be in the kitchen seven days a week, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I had to cook breakfast, get up at like three o'clock in the morning, cook breakfast. Right, they serve breakfast around 5 a.m. and then uh, clean the kitchen. I'd serve a couple hundred inmates, clean the kitchen, go take a nap, wake up at 10 a.m., do it again for lunch, serve lunch, go take another nap, get up again, serve dinner, seven days a week. Now, they told me, they said, oh, you only have to do this temporarily until we find, we in, uh, we transfer in some more inmates that can help you in the kitchen, and, you know, you'll get a day off. That didn't happen for five months. I worked seven days a week, every day in the kitchen, not a lot of sleep, and not only that, a lot of the guards there knew me a reputation, but the difference there they weren't my friends they weren't anybody that gave a shit about me they wanted to make an example of me i would hear them say things like oh you're a big shot let's see you know you're a big shot you think you're better than people so they give me a hard time on every corner they had a a lieutenant his name will come back to me uh, and that lieutenant used to give me a hard time every day whether searching my cell and all this and then, and then I learned something when I, I actually went out to the community and got a job later, but I, that'll it'll come to that. But I was given a hard time every day. Um, I was arrogant. I was cocky. And I didn't care because I knew I was going to get out at a certain day no matter what. And I didn't care if it was in prison or work release. I, you know, I wanted to do work release. But I was getting to the point where, like, they were messing with me so much, it was starting to break my spirit a little bit. I was starting to to feel like, man, I'm going to have to prove myself one of these days and just say, fuck it. Send me back up the road. And 
Luckily, I didn't. And some of the guards that constantly fucked with me every day gave me a hard time. I, you know, they, they, they started to come around and see I'm the same person every day. They started to give me some levels of respect because I didn't budge. And then I, I learned something unique. You got to pay off some of these guards. They wanted some money. Right? And I learned that because I had uh, people that were in there. They, they paid off the guards and the guards left them the fuck alone. And I realized that they thought I had a lot of money because I had a popular radio show before I went to prison and everybody seemed to know me. They thought I was balling. They thought I had money. I'm in there hustling. I'm in there selling food out the kitchen on the black market. I'm selling sandwiches. Oh, on chicken day was the best. When they have chicken day where they sell them chicken quarters, that's a good money day for, for, for an inmate. And... I'm maneuvering around this and they thought I had real money. So they're expecting me to pay them off and, and I didn't do it. I, I, I didn't know that was the rule. I, I had no clue. So the time comes around where I'm supposed to flip from permanent party to work release status and I can go get a job. I had a set up where I could get an interview at a, a radio station. I, I was setting it up. So somebody was going to get me a small engineering job at 99 jams where I could actually work my craft, do do uh, work in a recording studio for the local radio station. They wouldn't let me. Nope, nope, you're not working anywhere near a radio station, Bruce. You're an inmate. You're not going to work where you want. You're going to work where they tell you. Here's, here's an address. You're going to go work at IHOP, right? Backtrack a little bit. They fought me on flipping to work release status because they did not have a reliable cook. They had a cook that was a K2 Spice junkie. They knew he was a K2 Spice junkie. He was somehow connected to somebody. So they didn't really fuck with it. Like they, Nothing was really being done about it. And I'm sure there's people that may listen to this podcast that were actually in that work release program. They can verify everything I'm telling you. Because some of them are friends with me on Facebook, the same inmates. And uh, they, they'll tell you that they were dragging me about getting out of that kitchen. Now, when they finally, after having my family constantly call classification and, and make a big fuss about me not being able to get the same opportunity that I was sent there for, which was to get a job in the community, work, save up money so when I get home, I can be independent and not have to, you know, go live in a shelter with my parents or something that I, I, they told, they forced me to go take a minimum wage job at IHOP. Now IHOP at the time was paying cooks like what they would pay a free cook would be 11 bucks an hour, 10 bucks an hour, sometimes maybe even nine. But if you came from the work release center, the agreement was, is you work for minimum wage until you were free. I had about a year left on my sentence. And they told me, you're going to work for minimum wage for a year. And we're going to take 55% of your check. And we're going to take that money. And it's going to be used to pay off your court costs. And uh, 45% of that goes to uh, your incarceration costs. The other 10%, 10 to 15% 
is going to be used to pay off your court costs and any fees you have, anything you owe the courts, whether it's driver's license fees or anything like that, and it's going to be used to pay that off. So I'm like, okay, whatever. I'll just work, work as a cook. I've never been a cook before. I always waited tables. So I told the manager when I, when I applied, look, I have a lot of experiences as a server. Let me be a server. Let me make some cash. I know I'm good at it. He said, no, 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 no. The agreement with the work release center. His name was, was Gio. He was a good manager. He said, we have an agreement with the work release center. You're going to be a cook. We'll train you. Don't worry. And to be honest, at first, I, I couldn't get it. I didn't think I was going to last. I was horrible at it. When I was trying to cook, I struggled. I, I messed these people pancakes up every day. I couldn't flip an egg. I couldn't do none of the stuff I was supposed to do as a cook in IHOP. For the first few weeks, I struggled bad. Finally, I started to get better. I, I, every week, day, I started getting better. One, one day, it just clicked, and, and I got it. I was a good cook. And then I realized, man, I'm underpaid. So it's like that's taking some of the motivation. And they work, make you work crazy hours because you can't tell the... If, they, if your manager says, we need you to stay, you're going to stay. Because they're going to call the work release center and say, we need this guy, Bruce, to stay few extra hours and help out through this and do that. You had to work every holiday. Weekends, holidays, all that is mandatory. And I hop. That doesn't mean, mean matter if you're free or you're a work release inmate or what. It means you have to be there pretty much whenever they want you. You weren't allowed to work. You could work every shift but graveyard shift if you were in the work release center. And uh, I did that for a long time. Finally... They had a manager. They changed manager. They transferred our manager to a new store. They were opening up on Biscayne. We got a new uh, manager who actually was a new general manager. Uh, Shouts out to Mike, Mr. Knight Rider himself. And for the opportunities you gave me, I appreciate you. Because he let me out of that kitchen and put me out there serving. Where I made some money and everything started to work out. And the thing about Mr. Knight Rider is he was formerly an inmate at Opalaka Work Release, same place I was. And he gave me some game. He told me, he said, look, I know you need to make some money before you get out here. I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that. He said, but let me teach you some of the things you do. And he was telling me, I'm living proof that when you get out, if you work, you can get into management rather quickly. Now, my girlfriend at the time, who would later turn into my wife was living in Texas where I'm at now. And she was my support system. My mother, my sister, they, they helped out a lot, but April was the primary support system. She made sure stuff got handled and she would fly to fly to Florida, come visit me, put money on my books, send me care packages, everything I needed. She, she made sure I had it. And for that, I'm forever in her debt. You know, I will never say a bad word about my ex-wife. And that's a big reason for that. Because she was always there for me when I really needed her. And so I have a good support system. I'm finally working the job I want. Um, The prison guards at the work release center, because I'm not there much anymore, they, they pretty much left me alone. And... Now I'm just doing my time and I'm riding a bike seven miles to work every day, seven miles back. 
So I'm getting in shape riding this, this mountain bike through the streets of Miami every day from Opelika to North Miami every day. And things are looking great. Right? I'm talking to, to April every day on the phone. Like, we're getting closer and closer. Our relationship is stronger than it has ever been. And this relationship is somebody I've been dealing with off and on for over a decade. Since the days of America Online. And our relationship is going great. So I'm happy. I'm in prison, but I'm happy. And this is where I start to shift from wanting to do radio and and do mixtapes and be the Bruce Almighty that everybody knew from before. Is because I'm my my priorities are changing. Now I'm wanting a family. Now I want kids. Now I want you know I want a normal life. And I'm realizing that I will never have that in Florida. Like half my friends are out there getting killed. I got friends that that you know will always be in the in the life. They're either going to be selling drugs or. or be gangsters and all that. And I, I wanted to get away from that. I wanted normalcy in my life. I wanted to quit being in and out of prison. Because my whole life, that's what it was. I was in and out of prison. Now, if I ever write a book and tell my story, the things I have been through is crazy. I got a hell of a story. I'm just, this story right here that I'm telling in this podcast, which now is, is turned into 45 minutes of me just talking, is... I've had an extraordinary life, and this is just talking about a two-year span of me going through prison shit. And it was the last time I was incarcerated and one of the shorter times I was incarcerated. But here I am, in work release, preparing to be released, saving up money. I'm assuming the work release center is paying off my court costs because I'm giving them the money every week. The closer I get to getting out, the more I'm checking into my finances. I'm like, okay, I don't really have a whole lot. I have enough to get to Texas. Buy me a couple outfits, some work clothes, and and me and April are going to have a place together and, and live happily ever after. That was the plan. And when I got out, that's exactly what happened. I got on a Greyhound bus. April flew out. Me and her got on a Greyhound bus together. And took the Greyhound to San Antonio. Maybe a day or two after I was released. And we lived in this little tiny efficiency apartment. It was like a, more like a studio apartment. And I found out when I was trying to get my license straightened out that Department of Corrections never made one payment. Not one payment. Towards my court costs or legal fees, that or not, or the things I owed the state of Florida for my for my charges, which in if in effect, they suspend your license. So now, I'm four thousand dollars in debt to the state of Florida to get my driver's license back, and I needed a job, so I went to IHOP in San Antonio. Got a job as a server. Worked hard. When they found out I knew how to cook, they let me cook sometimes, which kind of fast-tracked me into management. I did great, all that. But the whole point of this story is everything the state of Florida was supposed to do on their part, they did not do. 
I did my part. I did my time. I cooperated, did the jobs I was supposed to do. But when it came down to it, they let me down when it came into reentry. And we wonder why we have such a high recidivism rate for people coming out of prison. My story is, is, is a little unique. But I'm sure I'm not the only one that had these same kind of issues coming out of prison. Right? When I got out, I didn't really have a great desire to get back into radio or do mixtapes or, or do any of that. I took a brief shot at it, but I wasn't really taking it serious. I, I did a mixtape, kind of half-assed it. I got on the radio like twice and broadcasted. On blog talk radio, but I didn't really promote it. Plus, my listening base was was scattered. I was gone for two years. I disappeared. So I had to go work a regular job, which there's nothing wrong with that. I worked hard, got into management, succeeded in restaurants, figured out I could do it pretty easily. With Well, not easily, but with a lot of hard work, I knew the route to take to get into management. And I had a few years experience in restaurant management after that. But that's because I worked. It was not because Department of Corrections taught me anything. It was because Mr. Knight, Mr. Knight Rider, a.k.a. my general manager at at uh, the North Miami IHOP location, gave me some game. The whole point of this podcast is talking about change and evolution and some of the ways we get there. And I've been through some crazy ass shit, folks. This podcast is not, you know, my usual kiki, ha-ha, funny shit. This is just my, my story. And I started to start, decided to start telling this story because, for one, it's therapeutic. I need content. And maybe, just maybe, somebody will listen to it and it'll inspire somebody. But we need real change for these people that make mistakes and go away to prison or jail or rehab. Like, we can't just forget these people and then be upset when they come out and do the same shit that put them in prison in the first place. We can't be upset when they come out and return right back to being a drug addict, a drug dealer, a thief, or or whatever, because the way we treat them when they're gone... It's going to have a big impact on how they act when they get out. I'm one of the small percentage that that was able to get away from my old patterns. Because I, I had a pattern. Like if you look at my criminal history, I kept going to jail for selling drugs. And Lord knows I wasn't good at it because I kept getting caught. I'm, I'm not unique in that. I'm pretty typical. Most of the people that choose a life... Like that, they're not good at it because they get caught a lot. Man, one thing them people are good at is catching you. They're going to find a way to catch you and put you in that system. And it's a trap. Majority of the people in prison are black. Minorities. Well, since the the boom of, of, of pills, Percocets and pharmaceutical drugs... Since that boom, you, you, there's been definitely an influx of white people because that's definitely the whites' move is to sell pills or to sell weed or have a grow house or something like that. But the majority of the people in the system are, are young black men. 
We're in the constant cycle. Because when they get out, they go right back to the same or worse circumstances that they left. People don't people got to remember these are people that made bad decisions. They're not all bad people. But survival is something serious. People are surviving the best way that they can. We don't have a crime problem in America. We have a poverty problem. And it's not just in America. It's across the world. You look at the cartels. You look at the the countries that are smuggling in the drugs. They're high poverty areas with not a lot of opportunities. Little to zero opportunities. Farmers farm the coca plant because it's profitable. They can't make the money sell, making, growing coffee or bananas or whatever. They're trying to provide for their families. They got all this land. So what do they do? They, they grow what makes them money. And once they do it, the cartels make them keep doing it. And cartels are born of poverty. I, I, I don't hear a lot of stories about a cartel leader who had every opportunity in the world and, and all that. Saying, you know what? I'm just going to sell cocaine. Make me a billionaire. A lot of them come from poverty. Not all of them. A lot of them. Most of them. And the prison system is simply reinforcing the poverty because they keep you in that cycle. When you get out, guess what? You got to pay parole. You're not making a lot of money as it is because you're not making a lot of money when you get out. I didn't get out on parole. I got out scot-free. But I'm the exception, not the norm. When people are getting out on probation or parole, they have to pay these people. Find a way to hustle that money up every every couple weeks. Plus, pay their rent, car insurance, whatever, whatever other bills they got. And they start to get desperate after a while. This is what's happening every day in America. And now I'm coming to the point of this entire episode. We have to do something about the people getting out of prison. When they re-enter society, we can't abandon them. When they're inside, we can't abandon them. We have to figure something out. Whether it's in legislation, whether it's some good people out there just trying to figure out a way to make it better for them, whether it's a pen pal whether it's creating some kind of support system where you can find a way to provide opportunities. Maybe you're free, if you're an employer, maybe you hire some of them when you get out and pay them a decent wage. Don't pay them like they're an ex-convict. Pay them like they're a worker with some skills because some of them have skills. I, w- I was in prison with every walk of life. And there are some people in prison that need to stay in prison and deserve to be in prison. You know, but there's a vast majority that are there just there caught in a cycle. And that's the point of this podcast. This whole episode is, is because of that. I want, I want to see, see the world a better place. And, you know, I you know, if convicted felons, Florida made an example and started letting convicted felons vote again. I hope the rest of the country can follow suit because if we pay taxes, if we have to go through the same struggles that you do, which for a lot of us is harder than yours, we should be able to have a voice. We should be able to pick our leaders just like you do. 
as far as gun rights, I'm, not, I'm on the fence with that. I think there's a lot of people that get out of prison that should not own a weapon. But there's a lot of nonviolent offenders that are caught in that poverty cycle that should have a right to protect their family and their loved ones if the time comes. We don't know. If everybody else wants a gun, why can't I have one? I've never hurt anybody. I've never been went to jail for fucking somebody up or killing somebody or raping somebody or shooting somebody, stabbing somebody. No violence. But I can't provide for my or protect my family from somebody that has a gun. I got to go to a a gunfight with a knife or a stick or a rock or a bottle. Nine times out of ten, I'm losing that. Folks, that's just one of my stories I wanted to tell. I hope you you enjoyed it. I hope you learned something from this podcast. Yeah, it's only episode three, so I'm hoping to get better and better at, at this as I go on. I'm now closing in on an hour of talking. I'm feeling a bit parched. And uh, if you like this podcast, let me know. Hit me up on social media, at Mr. Bruce Almighty, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Mr. Bruce Almighty. It's all the same. Hit me up. Let me know what you think. And uh, if you want to hear more stories like this, let me know. This is your podcast, not just mine. I'm Bruce Almighty and I'm out.